Tonight we, or today we continue in Jonah, and we're going to look at Jonah 1, 17 through 2, 10. And as we look at the story of Jonah tonight, we get to finally meet our good friend, the great fish. But we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about the great fish. So if you came tonight hoping to have all your answers about this fish answered, uh, this is going to be really disappointing to you. But I think on the other side, what you'll find is a continuation of the theme that you see throughout the first two chapters of Jonah, which is God's sovereign control over everything. And we said that one of the main things we wanted to take from the book of Jonah when we did the overview a few weeks ago was an understanding that God's grace is not only for us, but it is also for them. And if we don't wrestle well with the truth of God's sovereignty, then when we get to the point that we see God's grace being not only for us, but for the thems in our life and in our understanding of life, if we've not wrestled with God's sovereignty well up until that point, we will be frustrated with how God chooses to dispense his grace. So the first two chapters of Jonah, more than anything, are a chance for us to see and to learn and to wrestle with the truths of God's sovereignty. If you were to check any of the list of the great American novels that have been written, there are always two works that are repeatedly near the top. The two books that are often 1 and 1A, depending on what genre of fiction you like. On the one hand, you have F. Scott Fitzgerald's classic, The Great Gatsby, which is some people's one, but the 1A to that, or the one that runs close in... um, comparison is Moby Dick by Herman Melville. And what Herman Melville does in Moby Dick is he just takes the book of Jonah and in not four chapters, but in almost, it feels like 4,000 pages, he, he retells the story of Jonah in a grand sweeping epic of a story. Most of you have read some of it. The more I go back though and look at the classics in literature, I don't understand why they try to make us read these things in middle and high school. Like, there's no way you can appreciate what Herman Melville's doing in Moby Dick or what uh, Fitzgerald's doing in The Great Gatsby or any of these other works where you're like, man, this is so dumb. I'm in high school. I hate this. And then you go back later and you're like, now that's really good. Why did they make me read it when I didn't care about it? Early on in the story, Ishmael stops in the Wellman's Chapel in the town of New Bedford where they're going to set out on their quest in search of this great well. And he hears a sermon from Father Maple or Mapple, depending on how you pronounce it. Father Mapple opens his sermon, and of all things, he's preaching on the book of Jonah. And he opens his sermon with these words. Shipmates, this book containing only four chapters, four yarns, is one of the smallest strands in the mighty cable of the scriptures. Yet what depths of the soul does Jonah's deep sea line sound? What a pregnant lesson to us is the prophet. What a noble thing is the canticle or psalm in the fish's belly. How billow-like and boisterously grand. We feel the flood surging over us. We sound with him to the kelpy bottom of the waters. Seaweed and all the slime of the sea is about us. But what is this lesson that the book of Jonah teaches And tonight, our aim and our goal is to continue to help answer the question of what is it that the book of Jonah teaches us today? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the chance to sing our praises to you. We're grateful just for the sound of our voices lifted in unison, declaring your goodness and your greatness. 
And it's stunning if we really stop to think about it that we have a friend in Jesus. A friend who has loved us to the uttermost. A friend who has given his life to redeem us. And so would that sweet truth just really settle in our hearts tonight that we have a friend in Jesus if we've trusted in him for the forgiveness of our sins and will we not forfeit peace by running from him but will we find peace by bringing all of our life and running to him it's in his name that we pray amen most of us if we're honest are not well versed pun intended in reading poetry well Most of us struggle mightily to read and understand poetry well. We like the speed and ease with which we can read and comprehend narrative or prose writing. After all, 99.9% of all of our communication on a day-to-day basis is in a narrative, a dialogue, or a prose-type form. It's what we're most comfortable with. The only times we really diverge into verse is if we're around a bunch of old people and we're asked to pray and we resort to some weird King James style uh, verse, or if we maybe like Shakespeare and we go to Shakespeare festivals on our free weekends and we recite lines from his sonnets, or maybe you're really romantic and every, every important date with your wife or significant other, you recite these beautiful lines of Shakespearean verse to one another. But for the most part, we don't enjoy reading poetry because poetry is hard to understand. It is layered with meaning. It is layered with meaning that is often coming out of the person who is writing it. And so if you don't know the person well, sometimes it's hard to understand all it is that they're trying to communicate. But if we're honest, I think one of the reasons we really don't like poetry that much is it slows us down. And anytime you're in the scriptures especially and you're reading and there is a large chunk or even in the case of Jonah, little bits of narrative that are interrupted by poetry, it's meant to slow us down. It's meant to cause us to consider as we read the words of poetry what it is that we've really been reading. The writers of the scripture inspired by the Spirit are trying to get us to slow ourselves down and really begin maybe to see for the first time what it is we're really reading in the words surrounding the poetry. So it is that the prayer of Jonah that we're going to look at tonight is meant to draw us in, it's meant to slow us down, and it's meant to expose our hearts to our God. This is what God's Word says starting in Jonah 1:17, and we'll go through 2.10. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. 
What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The prayer of Jonah in two, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, falls out into two different sections. The first section, Jonah 2, 1 through 6a, is Jonah's plea for help. And then the back half of verse 6 through verse 9 is Jonah recounting how God answered his plea. And so we're going to look at it in those two ways tonight. The sailors have just thrown Jonah overboard, and he is now in his final descent. If you remember back from when we first started uh, in Jonah 1.1, we talked about all the different times that the writer of Jonah mentions that Jonah goes down. Jonah goes down to Joppa to get on the ship to go down to Tarshish. He gets on and then he goes down into the belly of the boat to get some sleep. And now he is on his way down again in his final descent. He is headed into the depths of the sea where he will finally find rest from his running in a watery grave. The first part of Jonah's prayer then stretches the ability of human language to express the sensation of seeing the end of your life coming hurtling towards you like a runaway train. When you read the first half of Jonah's prayer, Jonah is stretching our ability to put words to the reality that we're all going to die someday. And it's often hard to begin to put those thoughts into words, but that is what Jonah has done. He cries out in anguish and distress as he slips further into the inky black recesses of the sea. Jonah's prayer in one, one through, or 2, 1 through 6a, as you read Jonah's words, it's apparent that the great fish wasn't right under the water waiting on him. Like he didn't have his mouth open, like waiting patiently for Jonah to be thrown in. It wasn't like the little fishing game uh, my daughter has where they kind of go around and just open their mouth and you got to try to dip the little. That wasn't the fishes. The fish wasn't there just like, wah, wah, throw him in, throw him in. <laughs> There's a sense in which Jonah got really, really close to dying before the fish showed up. And so that's what Jonah is communicating to us as he goes further and further down into the inky black recesses of the sea as he continues to become disoriented with what is up and what is down. His heart, his mind, his spirit are all straining under the pressure of his impending death. And he cries out to God for rescue. Doesn't open his mouth to cry out. That's called drowning. But his heart, his mind, his soul, everything that he has within him that is still functioning, he is crying out to God for rescue. And so Jonah stacks the imagery of the belly of Sheol, the heart of the seeds. He has weeds wrapped about his head at the roots of the mountains. And he talks about the land whose bars were going to close upon him forever as a means to try and accurately communicate the despair he feels at being cast from God's presence in death. I would encourage you, if any of those descriptions pique your interest and you want to know more about what Jonah is trying to describe, I would encourage you to go get a study Bible and just read over how they explain those different images that Jonah is using. But the main thing he's trying to communicate is the despair of knowing that he is about to be dead. 
What I do want us to focus on, though, is Jonah 2, 3 through 4a. This is what Jonah says in his prayer. For you, meaning God, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, which has no small bit of irony in it after you remember that Jonah was the one who sought to flee from the presence of the Lord. Jonah acknowledges, even as he is on his way down to what he believes is his impending death, he acknowledges that it is God who is ultimately responsible for his current situation in the sea. And we know that the sailors are the ones who picked him up and threw him overboard. But Jonah could see that the hand behind the soldiers' actions, or the sailors, I've called them soldiers, I've written soldiers in my manuscript a thousand times. The sailors, sailors, actions. Jonah knew that the hand behind the sailors' actions was God himself. Here we see the sovereign power of God being bent towards Jonah in discipline. God is wielding his sovereign power to discipline this calloused, cold-hearted prophet. God is actually being very gracious in his dealings with Jonah because as Jonah descends into the depths of the sea, God is allowing him, if but for a moment, to feel the fringes of what life lived away from God's presence would feel like for eternity. In his grace, he is allowing Jonah to taste the very edges of what Jonah really thinks he wants, which is to escape the presence of the Lord. Much like the paddles of a defibrillator, God shocks Jonah into an awareness of the danger of where his continued hardness of heart and embrace of sin will lead him, which is death, both physical and spiritual death. God brought Jonah's running to, the, to a standstill in the belly of a great fish so that Jonah could weigh the outcome of choosing to continue in his disobedience or to move forward in obedience. And so it is that we could probably testify that God often gives us a glimpse either through shocking developments in our own life or through the exposure of often long-hidden sin. God gives us a glimpse so that we can see with ever-increasing clarity what awaits us should our heart remain on the run and unrepentant before God. And so much like Jonah on the run and thrown into the sea and then camped out in the belly of a fish for three days, it's often the case that God will bring our life to a screeching halt, to a standstill, and he will begin to remove the things that we're relying on for meaning and identity and purpose. He will begin to remove the things that we are using as a smokescreen to not deal with our sin, and he will give us moments of clarity where we can begin to assess, do I really want to continue down this road? He did it with Jonah in great grace. And every time God invades a believer's life and brings them to a standstill to see the maybe long-term ramifications of the sin that they are trapped in, he is doing it as a means of grace to discipline us so that we would confess our sins and trust him. I want to offer a quick word about the storms we go through in life. 
because here's what you can hear in this. I'm going to offer two, two caveats or guardrails so you don't drive this thing later off the rails. Or you come back to me and like, man, I heard what you said, and this is what you said. So let me offer two guardrails. One, in the believer's life, when God slows us down and exposes our sin to us, there is no sense in which we are then on the verge of losing our salvation. But we can be in a moment where we will determine our effectiveness in use for God's ministry going forward, depending on what we choose to do with the sin we're being confronted with. There's no sense in which we stand to lose our salvation as believers when God stops us. But what we can do is forfeit our place in being used for God's purposes in ministry on this earth. The second caveat is this. There will not always be a sin that we have committed that causes us to experience a storm. Fast forward into the New Testament where the disciples see the man born blind and they say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus says, nobody sinned. He was born blind so that I could display my glory and my power. And so there's not always a moment where when we are brought to a standstill or we are caught in a storm in life that we will be able to trace it back to a specific sin we are being disciplined for, like Jonah's being disciplined for here in the belly of the fish. Tim Keller in The Prodigal Prophet provides necessary corrective on this line of thinking when he says, The Bible does not say that every difficulty is the result of sin, but it does teach that every sin will bring you into difficulty. So when we face storms, we would be wise to slow down examine our hearts and ask God and ask trusted brothers and sisters in Christ if there is a specific sin that we are being disciplined for. This is a question we very rarely ask. God loves you. God has delivered the punishment of his wrath on Christ in your place so that you would never know the wrath of God set on you in your sins. But God is a loving father and he will discipline you. So don't mistake God's discipline for God's wrath. If you're in Christ, the wrath has been taken away, but there is a sense in which God will discipline you. And so we would do well to ask hard questions as we face storms in life to see if there are sins that need to be repented of, if there's a single sin that we can see has brought us to this point. But oftentimes, even if there is no specific sin, God in his grace, even as we just experience the storms of living in a lost, fallen, sin-filled world, God in his grace will often still reveal stuff that we need to be confessing and repenting of, even if there was no sin that brought us to that moment. Brian Estelle, in his commentary on Jonah, I believe puts his finger directly on why this slowing down and asking questions about what we are facing in life is so difficult for us. This is what he says concerning the first part of Jonah's prayer. The question occurs, what would our last thoughts be if we knew we were soon going to die and go out into eternity? We should be challenged as we read the psalm of Jonah. If we are honest, 
we often live at a hectic velocity. This fast pace, many times marked by our own secret rebellion, means we have no time for stillness of soul, for solitude to, for solitude to examine who we really are and what we have or haven't done. And that's the challenge of the first part of Jonah's prayer. What would we say? What would our final thoughts be if we knew we were soon to die and go out into eternity? Oftentimes, we believe that God will be impressed by our busyness. And we believe that God will be so enamored and so impressed with what Estelle says is a hectic velocity in our life that God will overlook our sins. And so we don't slow down enough to ask ourselves what we're dealing with, what we have or we haven't done, because truth be told, much like Jonah, we don't want to know the answer. And so we keep music on all the time. We keep the TV on for background noise. We call someone on our phone or text when we have a moment's break of silence in our day. On and on we go at a hectic velocity. But here's what I believe we know to be true. Those who have been in our life as Christian role models, those who have progressed well in their maturity in the faith, are those who often found stillness and solitude to be in the presence of their Redeemer. Here's the deal. If you get alone with the Lord and you sit in the, sil in the stillness and in the silence, you're often not going to like what comes up. And here's the good news. Christ saw it. Christ died for it. Christ forgave it. Christ redeemed you. There should be no fear of slowing ourselves down and sitting in silence before our Redeemer to take stock of those things that we have or have not done. Well before we find ourselves in the belly of a fish. Hopefully you don't find yourself in the belly of a fish. Then Jonah goes on and he says this, the end of 6b into 9. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah is effusive in his praise that God heard him, that God responded to his plea. And if we're honest, this same sense of awe should mark more of our prayers than it does. That the God of glory would hear and respond to my feeble request that the God of glory would hear and respond to my prayers for help, for my prayers of concern, for my prayers for healing and for boldness in my witness. The fact that God hears and responds to our prayers should fill us with far more awe than it does. And Jonah acknowledges this in this prayer. He acknowledges the sovereignty of God over his salvation. He says it in 6b, yet you brought up my life from the pit. 
and in 9b, salvation belongs to the Lord. As you read the back half of Jonah's prayer, you can hear the relief in his voice that his life has been spared and that he has been rescued by the same sovereign God who sent the storm and who sent the great fish. Jonah and us, by reading his story, are getting a crash course in the full care and involvement of God in every area of his life. And we see the same attendant care of God in each and every area of our life. Every step down the road, the writer of Jonah affirms God's sovereignty over everything that's happening. So Jonah doesn't appeal to his goodness. Jonah doesn't appeal to his status as prophet when it comes to his life being raised up, when it comes to who salvation belongs to. For all that Jonah gets wrong in the first two chapters of Jonah, he nails this part in giving full praise and full glory and full honor to God as being sovereign over his salvation. And as Jonah considers the sovereignty of God over salvation, he offers a warning to his fellow Israelites when he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah and the writer of Jonah wants those in the nation of Israel to pay close attention to what will happen if they continue to flirt with and pay attention to the idols of the nations or to the idols of their own hearts if they continue to be enamored with these idols they are going to forfeit their hope of steadfast love because if there's one thing jonah and the israelites knew if there's one thing we know there is no steadfast love in an idol there is only ever the disappointment of broken trust and a and a foreign i'm looking for another word there's only ever the truth of broken trust and of counterfeit love from an idol. And so if you trust in an idol, if you continue to go after and pay regard to vain idols, you will always be forsaking the hope that, is, that could be yours because of the steadfast love of God. And we would do well to heed the same warning in our life today. That ultimately the idols of our age, no matter how well marketed and no matter how well they are sold as functional saviors, will never deliver as we expect or as they promise on the front end. And in the end, we will be left holding the pieces of our lives and the pieces of our idols as we weep bitter tears over what has been lost because we forsook the hope that is ours through the steadfast love of our God. The same issue that plagued the Israelites then plagues us now. We want to pay regard to vain idols because vain idols look really good in the moment. We want to pay regard to vain idols because they promise relief that the Lord seems slow in bringing. We want to pay regard to vain idols because it allows us some semblance of sovereign control over our life. We want to pay regard to vain idols because at the end of the day, we still struggle with wanting to be worshipped more than we want to see the sovereign God who loves us and has redeemed us worshipped. And our eyes are always drawn to vain idols. And over and over and over and over again, throughout the history of the church, throughout the history of God's redeemed people, there have been those who have trusted in vain idols 
and they have forfeited the hope of steadfast love that could be theirs in Christ. The good news of our salvation is that we have now been marked with the steadfast love of God. Never ending, never fading, never failing to deliver, always on time, always what we need when we need it. And it gives us great hope of the future that God has promised us. But it is awful hard not to have our eyes and our hearts pulled off of the focus of our steadfast love in Christ to pay regard to the vain idols of our age. And if there's one caution, if we were to take the sum of Jonah's prayer from one to one through nine, if there was one warning, I think, that sets over this whole prayer, it's this. It's not, look, don't pay regard to vain idols, okay? But I don't, here's the real issue at hand with Jonah's prayer. Jonah prayed for deliverance. He praised God for his response in delivering his life. Never once did Jonah ask for forgiveness. He prays for deliverance. God saves him. Even though he knows Jonah didn't pray for deliverance or for, he didn't confess and repent of his sins. And Jonah praises God for being the Lord of salvation and that salvation belongs to him. But nowhere in there does Jonah offer a word of confession and repentance. Our hearts can remain unchanged even as we rightly acknowledge God and his sovereignty over all things and his gracious sparing of our lives. Jonah only ever prayed for his life to be spared. He still, it appears, did not see the issue with the path he had chosen. And you're going to see next week and in the week that follows the truth of Jonah not dealing with his sin now. Because it's going to come back up again and it's going to have to be dealt with again. Paul warns us of this danger of being able to pray for deliverance, praise God for deliverance, but never ask for forgiveness or never confess and repent of our sins. When he says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief produces death. Oftentimes, the reason the gospel feels so foreign to us, even as we confess it and sing it and read about it, the reason we often struggle to know an intimacy with Jesus that seems to mark the life of the, uh, of the Old Testament prophets and of the New Testament apostles and disciples and even of those that we look to as heroes of the faith, the reason we so often lack that intimacy in our own life is because we are trading in worldly grief instead of godly grief. We just don't want to feel bad for what we've done. We have no desire to confess and repent and turn from what we're doing. That's why so many of our prayers around habitual sins are, God, if you will spare me this time, I promise I'll never do it again. 
That's worldly grief that leads to death because we're telling God that the sin that we were incapable of atoning for on our own, we will now handle on our own. Every time we trade in worldly grief, every time we can pray prayers as beautiful as Jonah prays in Jonah 2, 1 through 9. And we can walk out of services and we can close our Bibles after our devotional time and our hearts are not softened by the grace of God. They are not changed by the goodness of the gospel. We are trading in worldly grief and we are forfeiting the hope that is ours in steadfast love and we are forfeiting an intimacy with Christ that could be ours if we would be marked by godly grief that produces salvation without regret. If we find ourselves being disciplined by God for our sins, then it would be wise of us to slow ourselves down. We need to do the hard work of examining our hearts. We need to ask the Spirit to root out the sins in our life, to expose the darkness that is in us to the light so that the darkness will lose its power over us. And we need to be grown-up adults who begin to make decisions that make it harder for us to keep doing the sins we know we shouldn't be doing. Don't ever look back at what God is or isn't doing in your life and try to blame him for your continued struggles with sin if you are not willing to do the things you know you can do to make it more difficult for that sin to retain its power over you. And so we have to examine our hearts. We need to ask the Spirit to root out the sin and we need to be bold and courageous in the steps we take to help keep that sin in the light until it shrivels and dies. And then this is the one thing I think we really struggle with. We need to ask the Spirit for the assurance from both the Scriptures and our experience that we have repented in a way that leads to life and salvation. When was the last time you prayed for forgiveness and then you followed it up by asking the Spirit to give you the assurance of your forgiveness? It's the Spirit's job to convict us of our sin. But it's also the Spirit's job to confirm us in our calling. If we will confess our sin, Scripture tells us, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would it not do us well then in faith to ask the Spirit to confirm that we have repented well of our sin? And this is why we want you to be in small group and why we want you to be in discipleship relationships. Because here's how the Spirit will often answer that prayer. is by you sitting with another believer and having that other believer speak words of life over you, confirming your identity as a child of God. The Spirit can do it on his own. I'm not saying he can't. But I'm just saying that often how he chooses to answer that prayer is through the community of believers loving and encouraging and supporting one another. So we have to be careful that we don't end up able to talk the way that Jonah talked about his need for deliverance and his praise for God delivering him. But we walk out of those times without our hearts being changed. I told you we weren't going to spend much time on the fish. So here we go. Everybody get your pens out. If you're not been to here, I'm going to answer all your questions in 30 seconds or less. Jonah 1.17, 
And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah 2.10, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Whale or not, octopus or not, squid or not, some unknown beast that we want. Maybe it was a Loch Ness monster. Who knows? Maybe that's why nobody can definitively say that the Loch Ness monster is real or not. Who knows? Here's what we know. Here's what we miss if we get so fixated on what kind of fish was this and how did it work and how was Jonah able to survive three days in the belly of a whale or a fish or whatever. Like, don't they have stomach acid to break down their food? How did he survive and all that? There are a lot of questions you could ask. But here's what we know from the writing of the book of Jonah. It was God himself, not Jonah, not the pagan gods of the sea, not chance or luck, that put that great fish in Jonah's path as a means of gracious deliverance. And it was God himself who spoke to the fish and had him vomit Jonah onto the dry ground. Not only do the wind and the seas obey the voice of the one true God, all creatures he created obey when they hear their master speak. Jonah 1.17 and 2.10 are meant to display God's sovereignty over everything he has created. He appointed the fish to be there. And in God's grace and in God's ways, he made it possible for a man to live in a typically uninhabitable environment for three days. And after God had a chance to work on Jonah and begin to soften his heart and begin to break down these prejudices and these feelings that Jonah had about the Ninevites, all of this is happening, then God speaks to the fish and the fish vomits Jonah out on dry land. God is sovereign enough to do that. If we're going to believe in the resurrection, this should be relatively easy for us as believers to say we understand, even if we don't really understand, right? If we're going to believe in the truth of the resurrection, if we're going to believe in the truth of all that Jesus did and said, if we're going to believe in the full scope of the scriptures from Genesis where our God speaks and out of nothing everything is created to the very end where he welcomes us into a new heavens and a new earth to enjoy life with him forever, if we're going to believe the full scope and sweep of the scriptures, then we can read this and go, it may not make sense to my human understanding, but it is is not impossible for my God to do this and he is sovereign over all of it so it is his prerogative and he can do it and he doesn't need us to be able to explain it for it to be true last week we looked at the sovereignty of God and we focused on the witness of the scriptures that repeatedly said our God is in the heavens he does all that he pleases we wrestled with the truth that to follow the God of the Bible is to be constantly confronting the mysterious ways, at least from our perspective, that God operates and how we have to be okay with not always getting the answers to the why questions that we may ask in the face, in the presence of a sovereign God who does what he pleases. But as we consider the text before us today, I believe we see an invitation to glad-hearted submission to the sovereign God of the universe. So if we take the full scope of the first two chapters of Jonah, I believe we're going to see, hopefully by the end of this little paragraph, an invitation to glad-hearted submission to the sovereign God of the universe. If, if we only knew God as sovereign, 
with no other attendant attributes, then we would be right to cower in fear before him because at a moment's notice, he could wipe us out without pity, without care, without concern. Fear of punishment would be the only right way to approach such a terribly powerful being. However, when we read in Jonah 2 that God provided the great fish and God caused the fish to vomit Jonah out, we see the one true God of history bending his sovereign power towards a wayward prophet in merciful redemption and saving grace. And when we see God act in this way, it creates a new fear in us. But it isn't a fear of punishment. It's a fear that is grounded in the awe and wonder that gives way to worship and glad-hearted submission to a God who would sovereignly redeem and rescue those whom have turned their backs on him. If God is only sovereign with no other attendant attributes, then we are right to live in abject fear before him. But if God in his sovereignty and in his love and in his power and in his grace and in his justice and in his mercy has made a way for us to be reconnected to him without destroying us, but through destroying his son in our place, then you have a whole nother God to deal with. You have a God who shows that while he does sit in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases, he is also willing to bend all of his sovereign power towards us in love and in grace and in redemption. The scandal of the gospel is this. He died for us in our sinful state so we no longer fear judgment. Rather, our fear is grounded in awe and worship of the one who would use his sovereign power to redeem. It is a weighty thing to consider God's sovereignty. It is a weighty thing as we live our lives from one moment to the next unsure of what awaits us with the dawning of each new day. It is intimidating and sometimes disconcerting to live our lives before a sovereign God who sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. There should be a mark of glad-hearted submission in the life of a believer to the sovereign God of the universe because we've seen that he will not only, he will not ever use his sovereign power in a way that contradicts his sovereign love. But he will use his sovereign power in love to redeem us. So we come to the end of our time today. My hope is that you see God more clearly for who he really is both as the sovereign ruler of the world and as the sovereign redeemer of your life. My prayer is that you will be drawn deeper into worship and glad-hearted submission to your king as you behold the beautiful mystery that is our God working in and through all things for the good of his children and the magnification of his glory. Brian Estelle offers a fitting final thought from his commentary to the first half of Jonah, these first two chapters. 
What application and consolation for the church, the Israel of God, can be gleaned from this rich interplay of images? In the deepest anguish of God's people, he is present. When they are drowning, he is there. When God's people are afflicted, even to the point that they feel as if they are surrounded by primeval death itself, he is there. Just as God delivered them through their ordeal at the Red Sea, so he has acted again, especially on Golgotha, to deliver his people safely through the raging waters, defeating their foes, subduing their sin, and bringing them safe upon dry ground on the other side. He is the sovereign God of the universe, and he is the sovereign redeemer of your life. Let's pray.